I saw a, a stat recently that was like a big hockey hit is three and a half times the magnitude of a big football hit. Now, certainly you're going to factor in, okay, well, you put a 350-pound football player against a 180-pound skilled forward, and yeah, that maybe that calculus doesn't stack up. Yeah. But on average, the magnitude of the impact is like their car crashes. Yeah. And when you have plexiglass and somebody's elbow sandwiching somebody's brain. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show is part two of our interview with my friend Brad Mills former NHL hockey player, entrepreneur, tech enterprise salesman, all around good human. So Brad, we ended off part one talking about kind of, I feel like it was just certain stoic principles that were, you know, the ways that you're trying to live them in your life. When you think about this effect of like trying to hyper-focus on what you can control and not worry about the rest, like how does that show up in your life today? Because we we talked about how it showed up in your hockey career. Yeah, how does it show up in my life today? Well, I think it wasn't like something I was born and you know, out of the gate, you know, it was this little stoic baby. <laughs> I, think, I think I had to go through a lot of suffering in order to reach a point where like, I knew something had to change. And then through you know, quite a bit of work, came to realize that almost all of my suffering was self-induced as a result of me being overly concerned with things over which I had no control. You know, it's like I, I sort of came to that discovery, not as a you know passing passage you know, that I read in a book and I had this, you know, bright white light moment. It was more, I was at the end of my rope and looking for answers to feel better, to, to find some sort of peace and serenity and joy in my life. And then stumbled upon some of these ideas and principles and then started putting them into practice at first only when I remember or got really low and saw a benefit, would do it for a few days or a few weeks and then start backsliding. It, it took a lot of time, actually. It was, it was years in the making of, again, that, that sort of window of time between you know, getting off track and, and then realizing it and self-correcting. That was months at one point. And now, typically, in most cases, it's in the next moment. Right. Like, <laughs> I feel a welling of anger or resentment or frustration. And that's a red flag to me that it's not that person. It's not this situation. Like none of these external circumstances have power over how I feel inside. Like it's my own mentality and focus that's causing me to feel that way. And yeah. in reading Obstacles Away, and I can't remember exactly how it's articulated, but essentially the, the premise is, is that it's, it's our inability to accept what is that causes that suffering. And so when I feel suffering, it's now an indication to me to look inward rather than to point the finger and spend the next few weeks 
feeling resentment towards a person, place, or thing. Hmm. Well, it makes me think of something. First, I think we got to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Scott Stonehawker, who originally got us introduced 10, 12 years ago. I had Scott on the show this year. It was fun. But, you know, again, I, I know I said this on the last episode, but I think it's one of the things that I've been so impressed with you over the years is like your willingness to not whine about where you're at and just buckle down on like, what do I need to learn next? What do I need to do next? It's interesting, I've, as I've observed you do that in your hockey career, in entrepreneurship, in your enterprise sales, like this is, I feel like this is like one of your superpowers. Okay. And it just seems like your like willingness to, it's almost like learn how this new game is played kind of thing at the next level. You know, one thing that might be kind of fun to talk about that not everybody really understands, I don't think is you look at most sports and you get in a lot more trouble for punching someone. You do in hockey. Okay. So I know it's another major milestone. Maybe not everybody would realize how much it is if they didn't grow, around, grow up around a bunch of Canadian hockey players. But when was your first NHL? I think I had a, a fight in exhibition or maybe a couple fights in exhibition. Yeah, definitely. I had that, that year where I had my first NHL fight, I fought Zach Ronaldo in Philadelphia and I fought Brandon Press at Madison Square Garden during training camp. And then I got sent down. And when I got called up, played my first game in L.A. This is for the Blackhawks? For the Devils. Okay. Okay. Played my first game in L.A. And I was looking around. I was like, <laughs> well, I need to get in a fight. But the two guys that I would have had Can to I fight. Just pause you? Can I just pause you? Because this is not a common thought. You know, for probably 99% of the people listening today, this is not like a positive thing for their work career. <laughs> Can you talk about why in the culture of hockey that matters? Yeah, it's... I think it's kind of primal and savage, but for whatever reason, it's you know maintained its relevance and position in the game. I think there's this this code of honor that exists in hockey where we have this self-enforcing set of unspoken rules that ultimately you've got two guys trying to kill each other. But in aggregate, it makes the game safer because if if I'm going to go out and I'm going to take a $10 million a year guy's head off with an elbow. Like I get a five-minute major. I get kicked out of the game. Maybe I get suspended. Maybe I get fined some money. But in hockey, I'm afraid for my life because there is a 275-pound animal that's going to try and kill me the next time we play them. So in the back of your mind, there is that restrictor plate, right? It's like, oh, I've, I've got this guy lined up, but you're wondering, I should probably make this a clean check. So yeah, it's... That's interesting because I, I have a friend, Jeremy Yablonski from Saskatoon that was, you know, he basically says like his job was to be a goon, you yeah. know? And, and he, he was played. very good at it. He was Do you know him? Yes. Do you know who I'm talking about? He played um, in, in Binghamton years before I played there. And I, I've oh, really? seen some videos of him going toe-to-toe with John Morasti, who was another leather-faced psychopath. And yeah, I tried to avoid both of those guys. <laughs> But Jeremy just talks about like kind of what you said, like his job was kind of be like a little bit of like a team protector. Like, hey, listen, you are not like you're not going to mess with my goalie. You're not going to mess with our leading score guy or you're going to have me to face and in a way that the refs really could. Like you said, they, they can't really give the effect that needs to happen no. with anything with that the officials do is react. Right. Yeah. It's like after the fact, you get punished. Whereas Yablonski sitting there on the bench, that's preventative. <laughs> like that's that stops it from happening in the first place because of the fear of you know retribution and you know i'm sure there's various opinions on it but 
like from my point of view, having lived it and, you know, been constrained by it and also held other people in check through it, I think in aggregate, it's a net positive for the safety of, you know, the most skilled guys on the ice. <laughs> it's so funny because... I think pretty much any reasonable person standing from the outside is going like, I don't get it. I still don't see it. But after, you know, two, three decades, and it's just, it's just like you said, the unspoken rules and it's, it's how it works. I mean, obviously there's been problems from it, but on the other side, there's anyways, it's interesting. Right. You you can point at concussions and, you know, guys, guys getting hurt, but it's impossible to measure how many significant injuries have been prevented. Yeah. Well, I will say this too. (laughs) I think hockey has some of the worst cheap shots of any sport. Like a bad cheap shot is like, I mean, I know you can do career ending things in football or, you know, hit a guy's legs, you know, hit him in the knee sideways or stuff like this. Right. Mm -hmm. But hockey has got (laughs) insane risk factors because you start adding. There's no out of bounds. Yeah. I I saw a, a stat recently that was like a big hockey hit is three and a half times the magnitude of a big football hit. Now, certainly you're going to factor in, okay, well, you you put a 350-pound football player against a 180-pound skilled forward, and yeah, that maybe that calculus doesn't stack up. But on average, the magnitude of the impact is like their car crashes. And when you have pexiglass and somebody's elbow sandwiching somebody's brain, yeah. There, the risk is well, just substantial. getting turtled and hitting the ice with your head. And do you know what I mean? Like, so in last episode, we talked about what it felt like after your first NHL goal. What did it feel like after your first NHL fight in a real game? Yeah, that was. Did you feel like you'd made your bones or what? What? Yeah. It was, so it was, it was my second game. The first game okay. I had Wes Garth, who was you know, six, six and had arms so long. I wouldn't have even been able to land a punch. And how tall are you? I'm six foot. So add in wingspan and, you know, I'm coming up significantly short of landing anything. And he was freakishly strong. And then Wayne Simmons, another guy who's very strong, very tough. And I was like, maybe not my first one. Maybe, uh, you know, it's my, I didn't sleep last night. <laughs> let, let me wait until the next game if I get one. And then my second game was in Vancouver. My parents had time to fly out. So, you know, my family's in attendance and there, there was a guy, Tanner Glass, who played at Dartmouth. We played against each other for four years in college where there's no fighting. And, you know, we certainly would have fought if it had been permitted in college. And we lined up against each other and I cut him for seven stitches. It was a good fight. I stepped on a glove and fell down at the end. But if anyone's never been in a fight, it's, it's like jumping out of an airplane. There's, you know, it's life and death. And your adrenaline is so high that, yeah, it's somewhat of an out-of-body experience. So I was sitting in the in the penalty box. I think the five-minute major is is sort of a benefit that you actually get to recover from that huge dump of cortisol and adrenaline and everything else that's going on. But it, it definitely made me feel like, okay, I can play at this level. I can fight at this level. And like this is where I, yes. <laughs> I can survive if I end up in more fights. And I have friends, you know, that were fighters and we talk about it amongst ourselves all the time where you were never, we were never afraid to get hurt, like getting knocked out, getting a concussion. That wasn't the fear. The fear was the embarrassment of losing, of letting your team down, right? Of like, you know, a momentum swing going against your team because you 
pick the wrong guy and, you know, their team got all pumped up and your team got a little bit, you know, discouraged. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't our safety that we were worried about. We were worried about, is this going to help my team or hurt my team? Yeah. You know, it, it brings up something that's become more and more fascinating for me lately. Did you read that, the Netflix book, uh, Reed Hastings book, No Rules Rules? Have you heard of this one? No. So very similar. His his head of people, uh, Patty McCord, wrote one called Powerful. Very similar books. They're great. But he basically kind of puts this idea forward of like, what if we didn't pretend companies were families? You know, like families, you're kind of stuck with them for life. Like, I mean, there's family-like aspects of company, but like, let's face it, they're not actually family, right? And he says, what if we, what if we embraced the idea of running our companies, you know, building and growing and managing our teams more like a pro sports team? And he says, like, you know, for those top players, like we're willing to pay what it takes at Netflix. Like if you're just a, if you're just like an admin person, we're going to pay a little bit above average. But if you're somebody that could possibly win us an Oscar, like we're going to do what it takes to get you on the team, which means we're going to pay what it costs to get you. But we're also going to say, hey, listen, this is this is for the time you're here. And that may not be a long time. And we're going to give you a great severance on your way out. But like this is not employment for life. This is how do we win the next round? How do we get how do we get the press? How do we get the wins? How do we get the subscribers? And it's an interesting concept to me of like, you know, we we have all these special forces guys on the show, right? And this week, I just taught a class with a guy, 28-year Green Beret, had spent a bit of time outside of SF as an undercover agent for the DEA. And we went and taught this like $11 billion a year construction supply company, right, for at our consulting business. And he really thinks about like not just leading the person at work, but like the whole person caring about caring about what's going on with their family and their finances and their, you know, like has the guy started showing up to work late? Has he been drinking more? Has he whatever? Like you are failing as a leader if you aren't going over and finding out why. And yet I think like for me, it's like, oh, I don't want to intrude or, you know, like we want to be so respectful of their personal life. And I feel like that's swung so far that we we don't even care about their personal life a lot or we're not paying attention for it. And I read like, you know, I talk to friends like you or people who have, I read books of like The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle talking about the San Antonio Spurs and how like, their their coach is like giving them the gears like he's not a pansy on the court but he's like really worried about the rest of their life and it's i don't know it's a framework that i haven't seen implemented as much in the entrepreneur world in the corporate america world but i'm feeling more and more attracted to it do you have anything to say about that well i i certainly think that that's that's the ideal right if if you're a manager or you're a leader in the business world and your people believe wholeheartedly that you care about them sincerely, you know, as, as a whole person outside of, you know, just what you can do for them in, in how they're measured or whatever the case may be, like, they're going to go through the wall for you. They're going to give you their best every day. But I think it's, yeah, it's probably more rare than we'd both like it to be. But at the same time, it, it's reasonable to me that these sort of top tier leadership principles tend to aggregate towards you know, pro sports teams or enterprises where you know the stakes are really high. Like the most talented leaders are likely to funnel into roles and positions where that's highly valued and the compensation is you know extraordinarily high versus you know day to day corporate life. But yeah, I certainly think that that I'm sure there's plenty of evidence to show that that style of leadership and like I can I can tell you my manager in my current role he's every one-on-one is about 
not about the work, not about business. It's about me as a person. Like, how am I doing with the relocation to Calgary? How am I doing with having two young children that, you know, we have in childcare, but I'm, I'm working from home. I don't have a you know soundproof office where I can lock the door and shut the blinds. Like it's a challenge. And he's concerned about that. And he goes out of his way to make sure that I'm supported. And for that reason, I want more than even more than succeeding personally, like I want to help him succeed because he cares about me as a person. So like, I admire that. And like, I think it's more common than probably it was uh, a few years ago, but hopefully that trend continues. Yeah. You know, kind of circling back to the previous conversation about fighting. Okay. Which I'm sure most like entrepreneur podcasts don't talk a lot about fighting, but <laughs> well, I got, uh, I got this, and I know this is probably audio, but here's just a picture from one of my fights. Oh my gosh, that looks like a horror movie, dude. Yeah, I still got that scar. The guy was the guy was left-handed, and I didn't know that going into the fight, and so he he got a free shot, but I made sure I took it off the hardest part of my head, and I wound up getting split. <laughs> That's a lot of blood down the front of your face, by the way. Okay, so. <laughs> People have to wait for the YouTube YouTube clip of this to come out see that picture. So my question for you is a, a couple of questions. One is, I'll, I'll start with this. You really reached the top of the hockey world comparatively, like maybe not the top compared to the, all the NHL players, but compared to the world of hockey players, the thousands of kids who dream about playing in the NHL, you make it. You you score goals in the NHL like you, right? You You made it. And then you kind of start over, like, you know, your entrepreneurship stuff, your enterprise tech sales. What was that experience like going to Salesforce and kind of starting over instead of being like the big deal? Like, I'm sure if, I'm sure when you go back home, it's like, oh, that's the guy who made it into the NHL. Right. And you show up at Salesforce and there's probably like rumors about that or like people think you're cool a little bit for that. But in other ways, you're like you're kind of bottom of the ladder again. What was that like? Before I started, it was terrifying. <laughs> I think primarily because I had been able to take a nap every day. <laughs> I had had my entire summers off to structure my own training regimen and take breaks when my body needed to recover and, you know, had complete autonomy. And now I was staring down the barrel of, you know, sitting at a desk. So like first and foremost, I was, I was afraid that I was never going to feel as passionately about what I was doing as I did when I was playing hockey, that I wouldn't be equipped for it, that I wouldn't be successful in it. So certainly there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt coming back to that theme. And then there was the interview process where, you know, my reason for being a good candidate and why they should hire me was because of all these lessons that I had learned reaching the highest level of hockey, like the perseverance, the grit, you know, the stick to the willingness to learn and adapt and grow, the ability to, to, to succeed in the face of adversity. Was I going to be able to to exemplify that in my day to day? Like, was I able was was I going to be able to deliver the things that I was promising them in order yeah. for them to give me the opportunity? So yeah, it was it was a huge shift, and but it's something that I still try to sort of internalize and exemplify in my day to day now. Is you know, beginner's mind. Yeah, like show up with humility that you don't know everything that you have more to learn that you have more to give like i guess yeah the question was what it was like starting from from scratch it was difficult and every job change that i've had has been difficult but the reason i've changed jobs is because i've reached a point where i wasn't learning or growing or progressing anymore and for me that's a that's a death sentence like if i'm not growing learning progressing 
I'm bored and boredom is a killer for me. Are you, are, how often are people surprised when they're like, but you are a pro hockey player. Doesn't it mean you're like worth tens of millions of dollars? Like they, like, do you get people who are surprised that like, you know, that you can be a pro hockey player and still need a career afterwards? I got a lot of strange looks when I started at Salesforce as a, you know, entry level SDR making $70,000 Canadian a year. Certainly. <laughs> like, why are you doing this? This job is yeah. incredibly hard and thankless and doesn't pay very well. And you just came from making a lot of money as yeah. a pro athlete. But like, I, I think that said more about their mentality and their approach to things because I looked at it as like, this is a phenomenal learning opportunity. Am I going to be an SDR a year from now? No. And I spent nine months in that role when they told me it was going to be you know 12 to 18 months, right? Like I showed up, I'm 32 years old, working alongside kids that are fresh out of school or they're on their second job. And yeah, it was a totally different, I had a child and a wife at home, you know, they're, <laughs> they're young and single and cavorting around. Like we were definitely in different places, but every, every new role has new challenges, new things that you need to learn and figure out. And yeah, I've never been afraid of failure, I guess. Like I sort of embrace failure because that's where the learning and the growth is. It's like, if you never yeah. stretch outside of what you already know how to do, then you never learn anything new. <laughs> I only believe that afterwards. I hate failure at the time. Okay. I know we need to go somewhat soon here, but I'm interested in these, you know, these years of sales, whether it's at your entrepreneurial ventures or in enterprise tech, what are a couple of the principles that you feel like have served you the best in, in landing big major accounts and stuff like that? What has served me the best? Yeah. What, what are like, what's the sales Bible according to Brad Mills? My dad says this quote and it's kind of corny, but I like it. Um, focus on the mission, not the commission. And when I go into a situation and I look at the money I'm going to make or the revenue that my company is going to generate as a result of a deal as a you know, secondary outcome or you know, not my, my primary focus of how can I help and serve this customer? How can I help them achieve what they need to achieve? Like the money and the success, that's all a symptom of doing the right thing and putting my focus on how can I help this customer succeed? How can I solve their problems? How can I make their life easier or you know, their employees' lives easier? By focusing on that, like everything else sort of falls into place. And there's been times where, you know, there's end of quarter or end of year where there's temptation to take a shortcut or, you know, do something that's selfish, not in the customer's best interest. But since I began this journey, I've tried to maintain that focus on like long term. Like taking shortcuts may benefit you in the short term, but in the long term, what does that do to your reputation? Anytime you're compromising your integrity, like that's that's something that you have to live with and deal with forever. So yeah, there's been times where I've been asked to do things, you know, because we need to hit some number or something, but it's not in the customer's best interest. And like, I've had some pretty heated conversations with managers where I've just been outright refusing to do what they're asking me to do. But in the long term, like, like you said, conflict resolution and focusing on, you know, trying to control outcomes. I always try to re remember and remind myself that like, this is just a job and there are thousands of jobs. Like, are you going to be able to live with the choices that you make? And can you, can you sleep at night? Can you look yourself in the mirror? And I, we've been talking a lot about this and like some of it's idealistic and I don't want to pretend or communicate that 
I haven't failed and fallen short because I certainly have, but I'm fairly confident that by trying to take that approach and trying to uphold my integrity has kept me from going down some paths that you know would have led places I don't want to go. Mm. I feel like this could be like a motivational book. We should just transcribe this show. And we'll put it as like a monograph. It'll be like a, it'll be a feel good book. Well, one of my favorite questions that maybe we can end with is, well, first, where's if people want to connect with you or they're in Calgary and they want to sign up for Google Enterprise Services, LinkedIn or what, where's the best places to find you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I think Brad Mills, Google will land you right on my page. They can reach out to me there. I mean, I hope that if somebody's listening to this, you know, they take something of value out of it. I mean, <laughs> Whenever you reach out, I'm always happy to hop on and, and chat. I have always enjoyed our conversations. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hoping that I said something meaningful or that, <laughs> that, that resonated with your audience. Well, I enjoyed it. If no one else does, okay. My my favorite question this year to ask people is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Honestly, if I could boil down I, I, like all the stuff that we've been talking about, I think it it could be summarized with like one day at a time. Like that whole notion of spending time dwelling on circumstances that you wish were different or, you know, beating yourself up. Like the more that I can remember to focus on the moment and stay in the moment, the smoother my life goes in all facets. So, yeah. I mean, when you're, there's that quote, right? Like the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. If you, if you stay hyper-focused on the next step, you typically suffer a lot less along the journey. It's yeah. certainly been true in my experience. You know, I think an interesting quote that I didn't, it didn't mean to me as much until I read the book like a hundred times, but obstacle is the way it's like my, it's like better than Xanax. I just like flip it on, you know, and I just start flipping through the chapters. Right. And it's like, until I realize, like, oh, quit, just quit being a pansy. People have been through way harder things than you. And they outthought the situation, right? And it's like, get my game face back on. But it's to the point now where I, I typically just listen to just the intro quote or the intro quote in the first sentence of the chapter, you know, like by three and a half speed and then go to the next one, next one, next one, right? But there's that chapter that starts out with the Chuck Palahniuk, who I think is the guy that wrote Fight Club, the book. And it says, the, for, the trick to forgetting about the big picture is to look at everything up close. And at first I was like, why is that valuable? But then over time, like, as I've listened to that book so many times, this idea of like, yeah, all of my, like the majority of my anxiety is either about, is typically about the future. And a lot of stuff that's keeping me from being productive is raking myself over the coals about what it could have should us in the past. And like, what's important now is what's important now, you know, like one of the thoughts, as you were saying that it made me think of just because we've been talking about stoicism and I wish I could remember if this was Epictetus or who it was, but they talked about this idea of like treating every day like it's a life and making like making this day count. Like if this if today was your whole life, would you spend it the way you're going to spend it? And it, to me, it's like, you know, being a child of the 80s and 90s, played a lot of played a lot of Atari, a lot of Nintendo, Sega Genesis. Right. Mm -hmm. And. You know, like those really hard games, my brother and I played Shinobi on Genesis forever. And it's like, you can always start over. Like the video, like the video game never self-destructs, you know, or like you'd get those cheat codes where you have endless lives, you know? And it's like, in certain ways, like treat every day, like it's a new life in the video game. It's like, okay, you know, well, tomorrow I'm going to start over and, and how am I going to improve and how am I going to beat the big boss and how am I going to, you know, like whatever it is the video, for the video game analogy. As you were saying that, it just made me think like, yeah, if we can, I just know myself, like 
I procrastinate. I uh, waste. I waste time. I do the wrong things. I do stuff that doesn't make me happy. But I'm just kind of like doing like the grin and bear it kind of stuff. I'm yeah. not like unlike your Yale coach. I'm not getting better today. I'm just like I'm not really living life. I'm just surviving today. And for whatever reason, that when you were saying that, it made me think of that quote. It made me think, you know, life's a lot better if I treat today like a whole life. And how am I going to improve today? And how am I like? What actions do I need to take so that by the time I go to sleep, I'm like, yep, that I used my day the way that I'm proud of or that I can be look back on happy. Any thoughts about that? You reminded me of one of my favorite poems yesterday, today and tomorrow. And it it talks about that. Right. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but there's there's one section, you know, talking about the anxiety, thinking about the future, remorse over the past. It's not the experience of today that drives men mad. It is remorse or bitterness for something which happened yesterday and the dread of what tomorrow may bring. Let us therefore live but one day at a time. And Who's it's, that been, by? it's been proven. I want to look that poem up. It's un- unknown. Okay. Yeah. I think it's been attributed to a couple different people, but what, as what's far it as I can again? tell, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Solid. If, if you have any listeners that haven't checked it out, I, I highly suggest they do. It's... It saved my on a number of occasions. <laughs> That's great. Listen, a pleasure as always. Let's not wait 400 episodes to have you back on again. And thanks for doing this. My pleasure as always. And yeah, maybe, you know, when you're, when you're up in Calgary next, we can chat about some topics to, to cover on our next installment. I love it. Okay, man. Talk well, soon. Sounds good. Bye, everyone.